And we are live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 2021 celebratory New Year's episode of The Geeky Bartender. I know we're a little, we're a few days late on this, but we did it, Chris. Five episodes. Five episodes. We actually did it. Yep. We're on our way. We're on our way. We've actually, you know, accomplished something for once in our lives. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not just lying about a bunch of bullshit. We actually did it. So I'm, you know, this, this cocktail right here, you know, we deserve it. We earned it. Absolutely. And we made it through 2020. We did. We did. So let's cheers to that. Cheers for real. Oh, all right. Mm. Oh, this is lovely, dude. Thank you. I think so. Definitely a crusher. You Definitely know, this is one crusher. of my favorite New Year's cocktails. It's been one of my favorite New Year's cocktails for a long time. And um, you should it, tell him what, what it is. Well, why don't you? <laughs> uh, th- we're drinking the French 75 cocktail. Um, we're doing, a, you know. But this isn't quite the original French right, 75. Right. Not, not quite the this original. Is the English version of the French 75. Well, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's, okay, so like many classic cocktails, the origin story, the history of the French 75 is hotly contested. Right now, I, I was, you know, we've both been taught various histories uh, on how Isn't it, it was originally made with cognac. Um, probably not, actually, because they call it's it, a hard maybe. Because my my understanding is that it they call it French because it's made with cognac and champagne. No, that is not why it's called the French seventy five. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just get right into the history of it because it is, it's murky, right? It's like murky and there's a lot of gray area. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, I might as well just give you all of the facts, all the information and you make your own decision about where it came about, right? Like, or like how it came about. So, um, the modern French 75 Right? I'm going to just call it the modern French 75, is gin, lemon juice, uh, sugar, uh, or you know, in our case, simple syrup, mm-hmm. and champagne. Right, That's like the the way that we currently think of the French or 75. Or since we got it at Trader Joe's, it's technically sparkling wine. Well, we actually are using cava in place of champagne. Okay. Um, now, cava is made in Spain. It is made from you know the Spanish name or Spanish varietal of the same grapes used to make champagne. In other words, the French would be very upset with us for calling it <laughs> champagne. Well, because it's it's not, right? Cava has its own like legally protected designation in Spain. Um, the reason I tend to prefer cava over champagne for cocktails is that you're gonna pay a premium for champagne. Of course, um, yeah. Because a lot of the process needs to be done by hand. Whereas cava uses almost the same grapes is made in almost the same style, but... It's, it's just not quite as pretentious. <laughs> well, it's, it's mechanized, right? It's right. mechanized, so... Industrialized. Yeah, because kava is is made, you know, mechanically, it's much cheaper to produce than champagne. Um, but for a cocktail purpose... It still tastes great. Right? I agree. For cocktail purposes, kava will is, like, significantly cheaper than champagne and will serve just as well. That's been my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's now in, in our particular version, we're using Meyer lemons because I wanted to change it up a little bit. Okay, so hang on. So I gotta ask you about this because you told mm. you asked me if you if I was okay with Meyer lemons. I don't even know what Meyer lemons are. 
So you're going to have to explain to me what's different in this cocktail versus just using the lemons that grow in my backyard. So Meyer lemons, um, they tend to, you can notice them because they tend, like, uh, you can visually look at the dip, like see it, the difference. They do look different, yeah. Right. Was, yeah, I definitely did notice they looked a little bit different. They're more spherical than the kind of like oblong, almost football shape of a, tr of a normal lemon. Um, their skin is a lot thinner and a lot oilier. Um, they tend to not be as high in acid, but their aromatics are really intense. Like you can smell the yeah. Meyer lemon peel on this, like Meyer lemon, like, uh, so for the viewer, for the listeners, it smells very lemon. If that's a word, like you act, yeah, it does smell like a very pungent, very cutty lemon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, uh, it's just a different species of lemon. Um, and so, you know, I, I had access to some and so I was like, yeah, let's just give it a shot. Um, it's quite nice. Well, thank you. Um, now, so just to get back to the, uh, the history of it, right. Um, the modern French 75 first appeared in print in 1927, actually in the middle of prohibition. And it was in a bootlegger friendly, uh, <laughs> kind of publication called here's how. Right? That's like what first published it. It's like a New York humor magazine, sort of. Um, from there, it got picked up by the Savoy Cocktail Book in 1930, right? I'm Which was a huge fan of that one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like as far as like historical cocktail books go, it's one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so from there, once it got picked up by the Savoy Cocktail Book, bartenders and drinkers, inter like, you know, it kind of rose to international fame. So that is, you know, if. The French 75 was invented the, when it was first published. If you consider it having been invented when it was first published, it's the only classic cocktail born during the American, like, during, like, a, like a Prohibition in, in America. So, or the only one that's still around, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I'm sure there were others that were invented that just, like, never, you know... Uh, never made it into print. I mean, considering all the, the cocktails that are short-lived these days, I'm sure right. there was a bunch that were short-lived during that period. Sure. So, the thing is, like, the problem with this story is that uh, there's, I mean, there's too many uh, other factors that uh, complicate things. Um, so, a lot of people think that, you know, this drink was first made with cognac or another French brandy, um, since it was actually named after the 75 millimeter artillery gun used by the French in World War One, right? Hmm. The, uh, yeah, the 75 millimeter artillery gun was actually very accurate, fast firing, and powerful. Yeah, it was right? a big surprise for the Germans, yeah. So, um, that's like what it was named after, right, is like that kind of artillery gun. Um, but... There's Did a, you mention where the French 75 was originally invented? Did you say it was in Paris? Well, okay, so again, that's part of the, like, the murkiness, okay. right? Is that a lot of people think that because it was named after the 75mm gun, the 75mm, like, French artillery gun that it was invented in France, um, there was a, a similar drink called The 75 that was published in 1922, so even earlier, by uh, 1927 famed, versus 1922. Right. Uh, it was published uh, by famed bartender McKellen, uh, Harry Mc who owned Harry's American Bar in Paris. So 
It's a similar drink published Don't five years earlier. Don't tell me this is the same place the Boulevardier came out of. Yep, same place. Same place? Dude, Harry's Bar in Paris, which is still there, by the way. They A lot of classic cocktails are attributed to that bar. Wow. Right? Uh, like, it, it was definitely, you know... What a trip. Right? Um, mm. So, he published it in 1922, but he credited that recipe to a different bar na- man named uh, McCary, a Bucks club in London, right? So, uh, the thing is, is that McCary's version, or McGarry's version, sorry, um, also includes Calvados, Grenadine, and Absinthe. What is Calvados? Calvados is essentially, it's French apple brandy. Okay. Yeah. So it's French apple brandy. Okay, so like, there's kind of a, a, a 75 cocktail that's similar to a French 75, but it has additional ingredients and, you know, like may have been invented in London, but was first published, like that version was first published in Paris. And the thing is, like, it actually gets worse than that, right? Like, it's, it's weird, but it gets worse because you go back to 1867, right? Several decades so now we're, earlier. Now, yeah, now we're 50 years in the past now. Right. British author Charles Dickens, right? Uh, I don't know who Charles Dickens is, Chris. You'll have to explain <laughs> So when he, he actually, like, there were, like, articles written about his, like, parties in Boston. Apparently the dude went hard. Yeah, no, there a lot of them. Like, Hemingway was also another one. Right. Like, those, those old authors, like, they were, they were rock stars in their days. Yeah. And yeah, they knew how to party. <laughs> uh, actually, speaking of Hemingway, uh, this French 75 is supposedly one of Hemingway's favorites. But that being said, he had a lot of favorites. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean... Hemingway had a lot of drinks attributed to, like, oh, Hemingway loved this drink. It's like, yo, yeah, Hemingway, well, Hemingway loved, loved alcohol. Hemingway, Hemingway loved alcohol. <laughs> yeah. He, he would be a respectable delinquent. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, um, okay. So, like... Yeah, uh, in 1867, Charles Dickens, when he would visit Boston, one of the things he was known for is entertaining his guests with Tom Gin and Champagne Cups, right? That's how it was referred to. Tom Gin and Champagne Cups. Now, Tom Gin, right, we know is like a sweetened uh, version of gin. I was just about to ask you to elaborate on on old Tom's gin. Yeah, so uh, that actually has its own story of where that name came from, but but, uh, just, you know, to kind of keep us on topic a little bit, uh, old Tom gin is a style of gin that is sweeter than your London dry style gin. Um, Now, a champagne cup, right? So gin we know, champagne cup is lemon, sugar, ice, champagne. You add gin to that, as he did, and you, you got, got a French 75. You got a French 75, yeah, right? That's, ba- that's basically what a French 75 is. Right. It's normally served in a champagne flute. We're having it in a Collins glass today because I don't have champagne flutes. But yeah, normally it's just the lemon juice, sugar, and gin. And then you serve it, and then you pour bubbly on top. And you right. serve that in a champagne flute, and then you dress up. The garnish all nice, and then you serve it to a very attractive lady. That's how you <laughs> serve a French 75. Uh, yeah, we're actually having ours on cracked ice um, because... Uh, because you needed to be fancy. Well, I wanted to try the Jeffrey Morgenthaler ver- like version of this cocktail. He insists that it is better on crushed ice than in a champagne flute. Now He tends to know what he's talking about. He does. Now, I do think that... like. 
it'll warm up faster in a champagne flute. My cocktails never last long enough. I was for about them to say, to no, a French seventy five, especially if you're consuming it on New Year's Eve, which is when I like to consume it, it usually doesn't last long enough to get warmed up. <laughs> Right. So, but if you are, you know, drinking it for refreshment purposes, the crushed ice does dilute it a bit more over it time. It is very nice. Lengthens it out a little bit, keeps it nice and, and frosty. Um, so, uh, okay, real quick, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up here back to the, the history. Um, so, like, the combination of gin and, and bubbly, right, gin and, like, sparkling wine, was already pretty well known to members of the English elite. Uh, the Prince of Wales, that was like one of his favorite thing, right, uh, at this time. And then we're, we're talking like early to mid 1800s here, right? right? Um, the mixture of cognac and champagne also had a name, it was called the King's Peg. And that was just as well known throughout the British Empire, right? So like, it kind of leaves us side, in a weird spot. Side commentary. Um, that's an interesting thing because gin specifically, was really known as being the peasant's drink. It was it was it was what poor people drank. Yeah, for, for that, a, for earlier a, on. Yeah, yeah, earlier on. So, um I know this is a tangent, but at what point do you know? At what point did it become something that like even the aristocracy because you said British elite, so that's aristocracy. Right. At what point did the aristocracy start acknowledging gin? Because that was like something only the peasants used to drink. Right. I mean I do, it, it, uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head, to be honest. I know that... This is something the, I gotta look up later. The kind of, like, when, 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 uh, that period of time where there was a lot of cheap gin floating around England and, like, you know, that was people were getting... For, yeah, that was a thing for a while. There was yeah. so much of it and there was no regulation. It was gin that caused the British to start regulating their alcohol. Because people were making it in their fucking bathtubs and shit and poisoning right. themselves. And they weren't used to, like, distilled spirits. Right. You know, they were used to drinking beer that was, like, 5% ABV, like, a 5 you know, Then all of a sudden, average. gin comes along and, like... You, and I it's think, eight I, times stronger, I think, I think you know what I mean, I think even the Catholic Church started preaching against it because so many people were, were making it. So many people were fucked up on it constantly. Right. But it became, like, an actual societal problem, like... Gin in England specifically was like it was creating problems, like it way more than like vodka ever did for Russia, for example. But like, well, I, I can't really speak on on the, the the history of vodka in Russia, but I do know that yeah, there was a period of time where like gin was like uh, a, a, caused some serious social problems in London, especially. Now, I know a little bit about the history of it. It's been a while since I've reviewed that. Um, the history of gin is fascinating, especially the history of gin in, in, in London. But uh, a lot of it had to do with economic factors. Right. Right? There was, that was when the Industrial Revolution was going on. A lot of people were moving to London for the first time. Right. You know, we're talking also, about shanty towns. And this was back when London was so heavily polluted that you couldn't see the sky. Stuff like that. Right. Also, there was a glut of grain. Right? Right. So... The, uh, honestly, it was the aristocracy, like, they love to criticize it, but they created the underlying economic conditions for it. Oh, I'm so surprised that they were criticizing what they caused. Yeah, that doesn't sound remotely relatable. <laughs> they actually 
pushed for lower regulation of it initially because it was a way for them to get rid of most of the aristocracy is landowning and they own farms. So they, ha they need a way to sell off all of their excess grain, especially grain that was like kind of going bad. Right. Right. So you sell it to distillers, right? You, you pass laws that make it, you push for laws that make it easier and cheaper to distill. Right. And now you can sell off your grain to these distillers to make money. Right. Like underlying cause of just about everything. If you dig deep enough is economics. Yeah. Right. So I've said that before. I, I'm on record of saying that before. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and because of that, because they made it cheaper and easier to make gin, bang for your buck in terms of, like, alcohol content for your dollar, right, or for your, like, whatever you're spending. Yeah, that's gin. Bang gin. for your buck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, why drink beer when you can, like, buy, you know, you can buy something that's, like, eight, ten times as strong as beer, right? You know, like, and actually, I think it was, it was, it was stupid cheap. I mean, you had people with carts rolling around, like street carts. In the same, it was as easy to get gin in like London in the like 1600s, 1700s, as it is to get like street tacos in LA. Again, this is pre-COVID, right? Or like, but yeah. as it's just it's fucking it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Like taco trucks, they just had gin carts. Yeah, no, no, right? uh, yeah, that is the story of gin. Is that like it was so popular in London at one point that. It became a public health problem. Mm -hmm. There were so many people that were fucked up on gin constantly. Oh man, I, I I can't remember the number, the figures off the top of my head, but it was it was a big one. I, I, I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the numbers either, but the numbers are pretty ridiculous. Yeah, um, uh, infant death syndrome spiked, cases of syphilis spiked, <laughs> um, like really really noticeable. Uh, you know, it's like in, yeah, it's like in, infant mortality. Uh, spiked and, and syphilis spiked. I know that. Um, so like, man, yeah, shit, shit got dark for a while. Uh, but that, so, I think, so I think we should revisit this yeah, but that's what's for, fascinating. for another one. Yeah, on this last point, but that's fascinating that, um, it, with this cocktail, it became a higher class thing. It became a trendy thing where even mm -hmm. the aristocracy was no longer looking at gin the way that it used to be perceived because for a long time there, Gin was perceived as the peasant's drink. Right. Now, something tells me, and this is more of an educated guess than, like, knowing. Something tells me that the wars in between England and France at around this time, right? Which we're talking, one? <laughs> si yeah, we're talking, but we're talking, like, 1600s into the mid-1800s. So, right? the Napoleonic Wars, perhaps? But the, I'm sure about, there were several. You're I mean, talking about the wars between, like, the British and French empires, where they had, mm -hmm. like, you know, it was the colonial wars. Those yes. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that those wars made it prohibitively expensive or difficult uh, to import French brandy, right? Because before that, like, French, French, you know, cognac, Armagnac, French brandy... Like, that is the shit that is known to be, you know, like, that was, like, the upper upper class, right? Also, Spanish uh, sherry, Spanish, well, like, just wine. As, just as a note, British nobility, almost all of them, have their roots somewhere in France. If not France, then Normandy. Right. So, like, even, like, you know, for, for hundreds of years, the British nobility, they didn't even speak English. They spoke French. Really? Yeah. Huh. Like the, the concept of the king's English came out like later. 
that was like, you know, a form of English that was like different than what the Anglo-Saxons, because they were, that's what they were. They were the, the native uh, British that had a lot of Saxon blood in them because Saxony, otherwise known as Scandinavia, controlled that period until William the Conqueror came in, but he's from Normandy. So mm. that was the whole thing. There's this big ethnic divide between the aristocracy who have their roots somewhere in France versus the Anglo-Saxon peasants who are the natives combined with the Saxons from Scandinavia. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not super familiar with that area of his, like that uh, British history. British history is fascinating. I, I believe it. Uh, so, anyway, I have a feeling that they started drinking gin as a way of, like, saying we're not going to, like, support French products, right? That or makes maybe sense, that became yeah. prohibitively expensive. Especially during that period, because there's a lot of nationalism involved. That's, like, the first time the countries actually became a thing, right around that period. So, um, yeah. And, and sorry, just to, like, bring it back here so we can we can move on, even though I love talking about cocktail Yeah, no, history. that's my fault, yeah. Uh, let's, no, let's get okay. back on topic. <laughs> um, so... Anyway, so David Wondrich uh, kind of uh, filtered through all of this information about the French 75. And his conclusion is that the person who quote-unquote invented the French 75 probably didn't invent anything at all, right? They probably just named it, right? And naming this cocktail that they had had in some way or another after the like famed... 75 millimeter French field gun that became uh, one of the icons of victory in World War One, mm-hmm. right? You you give this drink a new level of cachet, right? Now it you well, know well now you can market it, right? You know like so many things, it's all about marketing. So I think that 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 name right is what made is what stuck because it was the most memorable and it was attached to something very memorable, right? And so like I think that that is. Uh, you know, that's probably what happened. Is they didn't really invent anything; they just marketed it properly. Um, you know, and and a lot of times that's just how that's it all, happens. That's all it takes, right? Right? Yeah. Sometimes. So, um, you know, that's that's a kind of it's funny. I'm one thing that I one of the things I'm not good at is naming cocktails, but this kind of points to why it's so important. When when you and I used to work together, um. There were some nights where you'd be messing around, just R and Ding, and you'd have me try something, and I'd be like, "Dude, this is good. Let's put this on the menu today, or let's let's make this today." And he's like, "Today's and, special." And yeah, yeah. and you tell me like, "Well, I don't have a name for it," and that'd be my job, and I'd have <laughs> and I'd have fun naming your cocktails, and I could do that if 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 I could have a profession, where all, <laughs> if I could get paid where all I do is drink your drinks and name them. <laughs> I mean, good luck. That's yeah. a that's a dream job for me. <laughs> I would I would love that. Um so I had a just, you know, on the topic of the French 75, um I was going to ask you is that, you know, the French 75 for me is my favorite um New Year's Eve cocktail. When mm. I made them before, I've even pre-batched them. They were the first cocktail I've ever pre-batched. You know, mm. back when I was working at uh, the Mouston, um, I proposed, it was like one of my first big things where I was, I proposed like, let's do a French 75 special. And we were selling them for, I think for like something cheap, like six, six dollars, I think. 
And I pre-batched that. It was the first time I've ever pre-batched a cocktail. I know, you know, pre-batching is normal now. Like, I've done a million, I've done a ton of it, especially when I was working at Freehand with you. Um, but it was the first time I ever pre-batched a cocktail. But it's my, it, it, I did that because it is my favorite one. But I wanted to ask you, I'm like, okay, so the French 75 for me is always intrinsically attached to New Year's. Hmm. And New Year's is the biggest holiday that bartenders work, usually. Arguably. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 if you're working in an Irish pub, that's probably St. Patrick's uh, yeah, Day. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's, it's New Year's, St. Patrick's Day, uh, maybe the 4th of July, Cinco de Mayo, and the day before... Thanksgiving. The, the day Wednesday before, before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Those are the five days. Those are the five big ones, right? Yeah. So I had to ask you, I wanted to ask you, do you have any specific memories from New Year's Eve that you'd like to share? Any at all. Oh, man. You know what's funny is, like, I always, for whatever reason, most New Year's Eves, they're, like, it sticks out to me. I remember what I'm doing at midnight, for whatever reason. New Year's Eve, you know, I always go in knowing, okay, it is going to be a fuck ton of work, right? It is going to be, That's like... That's one of those days where, you're like... You you're take, there forever. Yeah, you, you get an extra cup of coffee, an extra shot of espresso, you pull up your pants, you, you, you tighten your belt, and you just go, because you know you're about to get fucking killed. <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, so I always kind of... It, it's interesting, I always have a, a vivid memory of like what exactly is going on at midnight um depending on how much i've had to drink but when i'm working you know even at like even when i'm working behind a bar i i try not to drink too much how, how um, dare you have a drink behind the bar on <laughs> how dare you chris raba <laughs> um but uh i remember oh god this must have been in the transition i want to say 2018 to 2000 like like December 31st 2018 or actually perhaps yeah either that or 2017 um I was working at General Lee's right where I used to moonlight shout out yeah uh great great bar in Chinatown definitely hit them up um had a lot of fun nights there well when the pandemic's over yes of course they used to you know I I never worked there regularly but because they were very events driven and they just didn't have the space for another bartender didn't you tell me didn't you tell me that during like the chinese new year or something that like they had this enormous crowd or something like that chinatown summer nights was crazy um it is a huge street festival uh, See, I didn't even know this thing existed until you told me about it. Yeah, it's like the first, I don't want to say it's the first Saturday of every month uh, for either that or the last Saturday of every month for June, July, and August. Um, again, pre-COVID times, obviously. And man, it gets crazy. I, I can't, oh man, I, I, I want to, I feel like the last time I worked Chinatown Summer Nights at General Lee's, we actually did over a thousand covers. Over a thousand bodies through the front and, door. And believe me, if you've seen this place, this place is not very large. It has a second floor, but it's not very large. So no. a thousand people in that place over the course of a day, that's a lot of fucking people. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, um, yeah, that was that was nuts. I, I do remember, so the, the New Year's Eve, I'm, I'm remembering. So there's like busy, and then you have three deep busy, right? And then you have a level of busy 
that I, I've experienced rarely where there's literally people from the bar up against all the way till every wall and as fast as you can possibly move you know uh just a quick aside normally if it's very busy people will be understanding with having to wait for their drinks right but then there you you keep going past that and you get to this level of busy where there is no way anybody is going to be happy no matter what one time i've experienced that once i know what you're talking about but I've only ever experienced that level of busy once. We were in strict violation of fireman's code. <laughs> yeah, th that that's the point where it's like you are past capacity. If the fire, if the marshal walked in, he'd be arresting you because that's how busy you are. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about one, us specifically, but well, you know, uh, yeah. But one time, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, I'm elaborating a little bit, I'm right. embellishing a little bit. But I've only experienced that once. But I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, like, that night, it was so busy that... And I was moving at the upper bounds of my pace as a bartender, right? I mean, we're talking, like, I was starting to, like... I'd make six old fashions and literally line up the glasses and just run the simple syrup over it and just like boom, 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 boom down the line with the bitters and like free pour everything and add ice and just like twist orange, twist orange, twist orange. Like, like any, any faster... And I would have just been like fucking up the drink. You know, I was literally, this yeah. is as many corners as I can possibly cut without making you just a shit drink. And it's still like that upper bounds of speed was still not fast enough. And like, you know, it was, everybody was pissed off. All you could do was apologize. There's nothing you can do. You just keep going as fast as you can and you, you grin and bear it. And I remember when the clock struck midnight, right? Like, and everybody's cheersing their glasses, right? And counting down. I took those like 10 seconds where everybody's like 10, nine. And I literally filled a pint glass full of like, just of water. And I took a knee, right? And like knelt behind the bar so I couldn't be seen. And I just chugged that full pint glass of water because I hadn't had water in hours, right? I just literally didn't have time. And so when everybody was counting down, I, cr I just chugged a pint glass of water and then I come back up and after everybody has cheers and already there's still like there's six people waiting for drinks. <laughs> like I had a 10 second rest, right? Where like I could chug a pint glass of water and then I, I come back up from for air, so to speak, and like six people waiting for drinks. And it's like... Okay, here we go. And it was just that until 2 in the morning. Do you, you remember know? if the tip out for the evening was worth it? Um, it was good. And but was it worth it? There's a difference between good and worth <clears throat> it. Um, borderline. It was borderline. Because that, that does sound exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the good part... Yeah, uh, it, it was... I, I'd say it was good enough. I'd say it was good enough. But... The thing is, is that, yeah, even if you, like, normally tip, like, man, you know, like, I get it, it's busy, you know I'm going as fast as I can, but nobody's really inclined to tip heavy when they've had to wait 30 minutes yeah, to get a drink. that's a familiar feeling, too. Right, and it's like, there is nothing that I can do to go faster, to make this faster for anybody. I, you know, every bartender there was working as fast as they possibly could. You know, sometimes you get the you have these instances where there's a bunch of people crowded around one well and like other bartenders are mostly like kind of twiddling their thumbs and like, no, the whole place was packed wall to wall. 
and there's nothing to be done. You just, you know, so it was, it was, it was nice. I love, I, I really miss busy bars. Yeah, it was probably the shortest um, night of your life. <laughs> I mean, it, it went by really fast. Um, you know, like, yeah, it, de- it definitely went by really, really fast, but man, it was exhausting. It was, that was intense. Uh, I've had very few bartending shifts that intense. Um, the 14 hour New Year's Eve shift that I pulled, uh, at, uh, at, uh, Rudolph's in the freehand, my first New Year's Eve there, my first New Year's Eve working there, uh, was, yeah, it was 14 hours that I was there. I didn't even get to take a, my break till hour 11. And you're supposed to take it before yeah. hour 5. So that, so that you guys know, uh, the freehand is one of those places where, like, the managers will get on your ass if you don't take your break on time. Right, but so I here, told so them and they yeah, were... so here's Chris Raba, so busy that even the managers are like, okay, keep going. Yeah, uh, that is not common. But yeah, we were just... We, yeah, it was it was crazy. That was a very very long day um so uh but you know it, it like there's a, a certain sense of pride right to doing isn't, that there is isn't there and and there's like a satisfaction in the exhaustion afterwards of like oh yeah i fucking got through that you know um i i actually i know i've told you this in person but i i, I really i miss bartending so much and i miss being in that crowd like being like like hitting sixth gear and being really like busy, I think the next time I'm working behind a bar and it's three deep, I think I might like tear up a little bit, like without exaggeration. I think I, I, think I might too. I, I think like that that'll be a, a a moment for me because like there is there are very few things that feel as good as when you're really busy, but everybody in front of your well sees how fast and efficiently you're working. And they're just like kind of cheering you on. You know, Chris. You know, I don't like even, that. I don't even think it's gonna take as long to get to a busy day. I think the minute that you have a bar full of regulars, I think you might tear up. Cause yeah. I, Cause I would. I mean that I'm, too. I'm, I'm just I'm just imagining in my head some of my favorite fi- uh, some of my favorite regulars, and we all have them, by the way. No bartender does not have a list of favorite regulars. I mean, if you don't. You are fucking up. Yeah, you're, you're doing something yeah, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you don't have favorite regulars, well, then what are you doing? Like you know, but if I had if I had my favorite regulars sitting at my bar and we were just shooting the shit and we're back to normal, I think I might tear up too. Cause, yeah, because that's all it would take. You know, we just want to go back to those times where, you know. You and I are like seeking days where we're working our asses off, but that's what we want. Yeah. We want to go back to working our asses off. Yeah. I, I do. I, I I really do. Man, I, I, I think back to when you said being surrounded by regulars. I think back to that night where Roadhouse and I... Uh, shout out to Roadhouse, um, by the way. I really He's one of the best guy. bartenders out there. Um, where we had that cocktail competition. That high oh, stakes God, cocktail competition. That's one of my favorite nights. One of my favorite nights in history. If I died tomorrow... That night would be in my top ten, probably. Like, because that was, we're crazy busy. Like, we were wall-to-wall for, like, four hours. Mm -hmm. And, but it was just, like, 
All of our favorite people were there. There wasn't a single friend. There wasn't a single face in that bar that I didn't know. Like, it and was I just, wasn't even. I, I barely started working there, and I still knew everyone that was in there. You know, and, and then like, and, and we were we were really busy. We were like raising money for charity. And we were talking do, mad do, shit to each know, other the whole what, time. Do you the cause? It was like for somebody's medical bills. Yeah, there was a there was a bar back actually that worked at right. Jack's. That right. worked at Jack's. Oh, Jack's, dude, that's a blast from the past. Right. Yeah. A, uh, so this is in Glendale, Jack's Grand is a, Boulevard. Yeah, Jack's is a now defunct, out of business jazz bar that had been there since like the '30s or something. It, 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 for a long time. Yeah, it, it was. It had been there for a long time. I I had eaten there before. Like I had a steak there before. Um, but it's no longer there. But while it was still there, when we were when we were working at Famous together, um, yeah, there was a bar back there who had I forget what disease it was. It was cancer. Yeah, right? yeah, he had cancer. He'd been he'd been a bar back in Glendale for twenty years, mm-hmm. for over twenty years. So everyone knew him. Yeah, and uh, and so we just decided like, well, one, it, this started as many great things do with two guys talking shit. And so Roadhouse and I, at the end of one night, one Saturday night at the Famous, we were talking shit about who could make a better custom cocktail, right? And uh, Matt Wallace, the the bar manager. Shout out. Yeah, uh, I love that guy. Um, Also one of the greatest. If I ever own my own bar, you best believe I'm going to be getting the band back together for at least some guest bartending shifts. Matt Wallace has already said he'll come out of retirement. And by retirement, I mean bartending retirement, mm-hmm. right? He's still he's a teacher. Um, he said he would come out of uh, retirement for a guest bartending shift at, at my bar. And you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get Roadhouse. I'm gonna get Tia. I'm gonna get the whole band at least one guest bartending shift each. Uh, if they're you know if I can't convince them to sounds work like the full dream, time. sounds like the dream gig for me to bar for me to bar back for uh, uh, bar back yeah. for those guys. You wouldn't even need to pay me. <laughs> uh, I mean, you would, but I wouldn't ask for much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Matt Wallace said, why don't you guys, you know, why don't you guys put your money where your mouth is? Let's have a contest. And that, I'm sure the original way that he said that was a lot more profanity written. Probably. Um, and, and it kind of, the idea grew from there. We decided mm-hmm. that we were going to raise money for charity. Right uh, for this particular guy, that we were gonna make it high stakes, and uh, you know I had a, a waxed, curled mustache at the time that I was very attached to, and uh, Roadhouse That's had an a- understatement by the way. <laughs> it's an- yeah, it was your, you, I, that was your identity for a long time. For 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 like three years there, yeah. The, there were there were regulars that called you Cash Stash. Yes, that was your name. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and Roadhouse had a man mud bun that he was very, very attached to. Yeah, he did. And so we decided that, uh, you know, for 20 bucks, you got three tickets. One ticket to have one of each of our cocktails, and a third as your vote ticket to vote for which one had a better one. And at midnight, we were going to tally up the votes, and uh, whoever got the least votes would have to get shave, would shave, right? Either my yeah, mustache. It was called the shave off. Yes, that's right. It was either shave my mustache or shave his head live in the bar like by a local barber yeah there was a barber that was there i remember that this. i remember we agree he, he like we we asked him if he'd be willing to do it and he's like he said something along the lines like i wouldn't miss that for the world <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and what's what's amazing about that one event is that we were able to harness schadenfreude 
right? The desire to, to like the, the taking pleasure in somebody else's suffering. We were able to harness that, right? For a really good cause, right? Of like charity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that like, I, I love that. I love, like we actually raised in four hours, man, we raised a lot of money. And, and the thing is, is that you had people like Chuck and I know other people that literally bought like six, they you know, like over a hundred dollars worth of, the, of tickets, uh, and just like didn't even drink all of those cocktails. No, Chuck, be... I was about to mention Chuck because um, Chuck's uh, Charles, um, I forget his last name. Charles Navarrete yeah, is one right. of is one of our, if not our best regular that we had when we were at Famous, and um, he's a friend of my dad's, by the way. Hmm. Um, he that specific night. He bought drinks for our Inca friends. Because I remember that Patrick was there, Anthony was there. I invited a bunch of people. And he bought them all tickets. He get, he, he got them all tickets because he didn't even care what the cocktails were about. I don't even think he drank a single cocktail. I think he was still drinking bourbon. You know, because yes, that's, that's that was his M.O. Yeah, because that's what Chuck drank. But he didn't care what the cocktails were or who won. He just wanted to see Rhode Island said. Yeah. And and I knew people that were going to be there just to vote against me, right? And uh, you know what's like... I actually think your ex-girlfriend, I actually think she submitted a ticket against you just because she wanted to see your shit. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I, that wouldn't actually surprise me uh, a whole lot. Um, uh, yeah. We're friends now. It's cool. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and and what's crazy is for all of those people, it was so close. Honestly, Chuck's tickets were, were made, the deciding factor. Maybe made a difference. I think right? it was. I think it was his tickets that were the deciding factor. I didn't cast a vote that night, by the way. Um, because I won by eight votes, eight out of a few hundred. Stop right? the count! <laughs> Stop the count! <laughs> Man, I must have jumped like ten feet into the air. I jumped like uh, Mandy, who's who's uh, you know uh, like my ex uh, who was there. She said, "I I don't think I've ever seen you that happy as when you won that competition." Sounds about right. Um, and uh, yeah, Matt and Luke were like, "You should shave too, just in solidarity." And I was like, "Hell no! I won this fair and square. I'm keeping this mustache." But. Uh, Thinking back on it, I kind of wish that I had, um, I kind of wish that we had just put larger stakes, right? Where if Roadhouse lost, we'd say, okay, if we can raise another 200 or 300 or whatever right now, if you guys will pitch in like then that much money, too. then I'll shave too, right? Yeah. That's what we should have done. That without, yeah, that would have been a great, that would have been a great thing to do. Um, that's what we should have done, but. Uh, oh well, to hindsight and all that. Um, but there is an amazing photo of Roadhouse after he got his head shaved, and he's standing have, on a table. I have this picture in my head: bald, shaved Roadhouse raising a glass. Yeah, a glass and of all, Jameson. I think. And, and I, I think so. I think you're right. And all of us toasting in solidarity with him. This like sea of people, like yeah. the way the photograph came out, you couldn't even see the end of the crowd. You know, the sea of people I don't all always, raising the glass. I don't to him. always want to give Luke his fair share of the credit because he tends to gloat a lot. <laughs> but goddamn, Luke, that is one of the best pictures you've ever taken, and you really know, for real, and, and you know it too, Luke. If you're listening, you know that is one of the best pictures you've ever taken. It was a really good one. It was a really, really good one. Uh, in classic Luke fashion, 
<laughs> because he does like to gloat. He showed me that photo the night of, right on his camera, mm-hmm. and he's like, you may have won, but you're not him. And he showed me that photo. Yep. I was like, you dick. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that sounds exactly like something Luke would do. <laughs> but it was it was truly amazing all around. Uh, I've I've oh, man that that definitely is with, in terms of like nights behind a bar. That's up there. That's like in my top five easy. Uh, if if not higher than my, that. like it was you my know. one regret for that evening is that I wasn't working that night. I came mm-hmm. in as a visitor. But I ended up getting recruited to watch the door. And I did things like pick up glassware, you know, but I wasn't being paid. Yeah. And I wish I could have been behind the bar. I think that might have been one of John Carella's first nights. Hmm. I think. I think. I'm pretty sure, actually, that that was one of the first nights that he had been hired as a barback. So he got thrown into the fire. That was his baptism. <laughs> right there. Y'all th- need one of those. I think I'm pretty sure that's the case. But yeah, um, if I could do it all over again, the one thing I would change, I wouldn't change it. Uh, the one, the two things I would change is what you just said about, mm. you know, a couple hundred dollars more and you'd shave too. Mostly because I just want to see you shave. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then you could cash in yeah, on yeah. that again. Right. Like people being like, oh, we can get a, a two for one. Right. Just like a little bit more. You and, know what I mean? and, you, and you know our regulars. They would have fucking done it for yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you would have just, like, we would have just passed around a bucket and like, if you know Habibi, I mean? If Habibi was there, he would have done it himself. Yeah. Like, what do you need? 200 bucks? Yeah, he would have just I got you. pulled out his billfold yeah, yeah, and just he, thrown it in there. Yeah, he like, would just would have you just writ, would have written a blank check. Whatever gets mustached to, to <laughs> shave. Oh man, I, I miss all those people, dude. Me too. Me too. There was like that was to date. You know, there was a lot of things uh, about like that bar that uh, could have been improved, but the people there, man, like the the people, both both the 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 regulars and and the people that work there. It, it was like lightning in a bottle, man. It, it really was special. Was. It was. It could. It could probably never be repeated. And you know, I don't want to. I don't want to criticize or belittle any establishment, but I guarantee you, you put our you put our all star team against their all star team, and we could roll the ball out. We could play, because yeah. I would put our all star team against any all star team of any bar in the entire world. And right could, and we could play we yeah could we definitely hold our yeah. own um for sure i you know and, and that kind of makes me think of that points to what i think is the most important factor in any bar right is that it's it's not the like necessarily i think the most important factor is the people right i mean you have like there's location there's how the quality of the drinks the price of the drinks the decor, the like overall theme, you know, but the people How working hot the there. Girls are, <laughs> there's a lot of factors, but the 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 most important one, the one that eclipses all of the rest, is the people working behind a bar. You take a great crew that works well together, you can throw them in almost any bar and they'll be successful. Right? It may take some time for them to get that reputation at that bar. But they'll make it successful. And I think the, the reverse is true. You can take a bar that is in every other way set up for success. But if your employees... You put the wrong people there, it won't right, succeed. If your employees are not happy and don't work well together, right? Like, you're, it's, it's always going to fail. You know, sooner or later, it is always going to fail. So, you know, and that's like one of the biggest lessons that I've taken 
uh, from from the bar industry, and especially, um, you know, in light of the fact that I hope to hope to open my own bar one day soon. Um, kind of, a, of speaking a little bit of a parallel, though. Um, I know that I asked you to to watch Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. And even though the same people that were involved in that movie were also the ones that made the the first one, the one that was set in World War One and stuff. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, the, 1984 failed. Failed hard. It was a, it was a bad movie. If, mm. if the same people were behind it, though, what went wrong? Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to actually ask you to answer that question first. Okay. I want, I want to know, I know that in general, okay, so you don't like the movie. You don't like Wonder Woman 84. Do you though? What? Uh, it is not as bad as I was led to believe. Well, I spared no expense (laughs) when I spoke about how much I just, I dislike that movie. Um, but, okay, tell me, tell me your answer to that question. Okay, so here's what I think happened. So, the first Wonder Woman movie is directed by Patty Jenkins. She's the director, she's the writer, like, the main person involved in the first one. But she was operating with a very short leash in that first movie. To the point where that whole scene with Ares, you know, at the end, Mm. that's the part of the movie that ruins it for me, I think. Where, like, Ares, like... Oh, it turns out this British dude is Ares, and then uh, Gal Gadot and he are having like this big CGI-filled fucking fight at the end of the movie, and it completely like ruins the pacing of the movie or whatever. She never wanted that scene to be in there. She never mm. wanted there to be a big action scene at the end of the movie. She was content to end the movie a completely different way, and the studio said, no, we need to have a big action scene to, to cap the whole thing off. So the first Wonder Woman movie... Patty Jenkins was had a lot of studio interference. She had a lot of other cooks in the kitchen that were dictating how this movie was supposed to go. Not the case with 1984. Because the first Wonder Woman movie was so successful and because DC does not really have a lot of successful movies recently. Right. Yeah, yeah. they've been definitely struggling, especially when you compare them to Marvel. Especially when you compare them to Marvel, correct. So, um... Patty Jenkins was it because the first Wonder Woman movie was good and, and most people liked it. Um, she had the clout to negotiate full creative control over Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, full creative control, as in she answered literally to nobody. Hmm. That's the problem. I don't think you should. I, I think in very few situations you should give a director or a writer full creative control to do whatever they want with a movie. There are very few people that I would be like, oh no, let them do whatever they want. Martin Scorsese, um, Quentin Tarantino, James Cameron. That's it. I can't think of anyone else. I can't think of anyone else that I would feel comfortable letting them have full creative control over what they're doing. Even The Mandalorian is successful because it's Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni. They bounce off of each other. Right. Kevin Feige is like the head of of Marvel in general, but he's not the one that makes the movies. He's just the head executive that they have to answer to when they're making the movies. They have to bounce ideas off of him. 
But, like, whatever director is in charge of making every single movie, it varies. But they don't have full creative control. At the end of the day, whatever they want to do, Kevin Feige has to sign off on it. And he's the Mm. one that's in charge of the entire franchise. So he won't let them do anything really fucking stupid. Right. But if you give a director full creative control, then they can do whatever they want. That's how Last Jedi happened. Because Rian Johnson had full creative control. He wrote the script. He did. He directed the entire movie. He was he was in complete control of that movie. So when he wants to destroy the entire lore, there's nobody there to stop him. Right. Even yeah. Mark Even Mark Hamill tried to stop him, but he couldn't do anything because this is his movie. He can do whatever he wants. Right. That's the problem. I think that's what I think happened. I think that. Patty Jenkins had it in her head that these that this was a movie she wanted to make. She wanted to do all these different references. Like, the fact that Steve Trevor came back, that's actually a reference to Heaven Can Wait. It's a Warren Beatty film. But huh. she really wanted that reference to Warren Beatty to be in there for huh. some reason. You know, these weird little things that she specifically, these passion projects that she specifically wants to do, those are in the movie. They don't need to be there. Way too much of that movie is focused on Steve Trevor. Am I wrong? Uh, I don't. I don't think way too much was focused on him. Okay, I, matter of degree. Sure. Yeah, I mean, hmm. Okay, my thoughts on Wonder Woman eighty four. So I was prepared for something really awful, and I tried to be generous with my. Uh, my, you know, interpretation of the movie, I tried to come at it with an open mind and and look at it from a wider perspective, right? And I thought, my first, you know, some of my first reactions were, wait, there's just a magic rock that grants wishes. So dumb. But then I thought, okay, compare that to an alien gets powers from the yellow sun. Makes about just as much sense. God, you're such a Superman hater. (laughs) Um, you know, like, superpowers, right, are pretty much just, they're always, you know, they don't really stand up to any kind of scrutiny, right? That's one of the reasons why I do love Batman, is he doesn't have any superpowers. There's nothing supernatural about Batman, right? You know, maybe some oh, of his the fact technic- that he's like the perfect human being ever. Sure. He he's has- so unrealistic in that he's supposed to be a human, except he's perfect. Well, he has, he possesses a lot of the upper bounds of human ability, right? And while, More like all of the upper bounds of human right. ability. <laughs> and that's what makes him a superhero, right? But not in a way that is uh, truly unbelievable, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, there are people that can run extremely fast or jump extremely high or have extremely strong like ability for like combat, right? Like, or are extremely rich or have a lot of you know, tech toys, like ama- you can build these amazing gadgets, right? Those all exist in separate people. So in this fictional superhero, they just all exist in one person, right? And so it's like, that is believable. It doesn't really take a whole lot of uh, stretch. You know, you don't really have to like test your suspension of disbelief to be like, to buy into it and be like, okay, yeah, that's this person, that's this character. Sure, let's run with that. Um, versus like any kind of, a supernatural being, right, in a fictional world, you kind of just have to say, all right, I buy it, 
right? Because you can't get past the beginning of the movie without buying into it, right? If I had quit that movie after, like, oh, there's a magic rock that makes wishes, that grants wishes, like, you know what I mean? That, that I would have been gone after, like, 15 minutes, right? Like, you can't actually get into the story unless you have a suspension of disbelief. And with superhero movies that involve any kind of superpower, that's always going to be the case, right? So, like, was it a bit campy? Sure. Was it a bit unimaginative? Yeah. Like, it was unimaginative, but is it that different from most superpower movies? No, not really. Not really when you think about it. It's not that different, right? Um, so... I, I, those are my, that was my initial thought and then my reflection upon it. And so I said, okay, put that off to the side. Pedro Pascal, I actually thought acted his heart out, right? I thought that his acting that. was extremely solid. I think that the dialogue written between any of the characters, really, I think a lot of the dialogue was pretty, Spotty. pretty poor. Yeah. It, it, you know what I mean? But I think that with the dialogue, he did the best that he could with the character, plot development, and dialogue he was given. I think he did a great job under those circumstances, for sure, right? Like, you really, what I love about him as a villain is that in a lot of ways, like, you, you like, empathized with him, right? Like, uh, I, I can never remember the difference between sympathy and empathy, but you know what I mean? Like, you you felt for him. You're like, oh, like, sympathy, I get it. Sympathy is that you can understand someone's feelings. Empathy is that you actually feel those Got feelings. It. Okay. So, like, you can sympathize with him, right? He's a single father, right? He really wants to... Even though his kid looks nothing like him, but that's beside the point. Eh. Uh, he, you know, he, he's, uh, he wants his son to be proud of him, right? He wants to be able to like have enough to provide for his son right mm-hmm. so that you know he is proud of him um and and so even though he is a villain right i think what makes vi- certain villains compelling is when their motivations are something that we can sympathize with yeah right? a, a good villain is relatable it's, right it's the reason the joker works so well right like it's especially the most recent movie because it's like the way that the story is told is that anybody is only a couple steps away from being the next Joker, you know? It right. Just, it just takes, you know, it just takes you going over the edge right. to become the next Joker. Versus, like, a, I don't know, the first thing that comes to mind, actually, is Emperor Palpatine. He right. is an unrelatable villain because he just wants power, right? And it's like, oh, he's just power hungry. Fine. You know what I mean? It's, it's not... You don't really feel any connection to him. Versus Darth Vader. Darth Vader in the original trilogy was not super relatable. But once you had the prequels, yeah. right, that kind of flesh out his whole character, you get it a little bit more, right? But, like, um, you know, so just going back to Wonder Woman, uh, yeah, like, Pedro Pascal, I think, did a great job. Was it what's it, what's her name? Kristen Lerner. Kirsten Lerner. Who played Chitara? I I can't remember. Um, dude, what is her name? You're because I'm gonna I'm gonna find her. It is a Kristen. It's a Kristen something. I just don't remember exactly what her name is. Uh, anyway, um, Kristen Wig. Oh, Kristen, Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig. Sorry, That's names name. are not my strong suit. So Kristen Wig. I thought, man. 
I thought her character was good until she turned evil, which kind of came out of nowhere, right? Like, man, her character... There's a huge tonal shift for her character that kind of comes out of left field. Right. And I, I really... You know what I mean? Like, it could have been... It could have been good if it was better written. Uh, her character and that shift could have been could have been much better, right? And it just... Man, I think they kind of, like... One of just my... got lazy about that, that turn. Right. In, like, character shift. Like, that character development happened so suddenly and kind of out of nowhere that, like, it didn't really make sense. Um, and I think overall, like, man, they could have done so much better with it, right? Like, if you look at the overall character arc... That's pretty cool, right? It's pretty good, nice character, like, art overall from beginning to end. But the fact that, like, that turn happened so suddenly, right? Instead of being, like, a gradual change that makes sense given, like, what's happened to her. It's just like, oh, she's got a taste of power and now just wants all of it, right? And it's like, r really? Like, I, I don't know. Um, a normal, rational person might just compromise a little bit here. Yeah, or, you know, you slowly get, like, dragged, you know, pulled to the dark side rather than making a sudden turn, right? Um, I, I don't know. And maybe that that's just more of my so personal So there's a couple of specific gripes that I've got that I want to run with you. Sure, that sure. Want, that I want to run over with you. Let me do one more point, and okay. then I'll, like, right. I'll, 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 right. I'll, I'll wrap up. Now, all of that, right, given all of that, I would say that my biggest problem with the movie well quick aside i think that the like campy 80s references were mostly like annoying and distracting right like they, they weren't i don't know there, there wasn't uh they weren't endearing right like the opening scene in the mall like the fuck was that i, I get it it's like a reference to, i think superman 3 or something but it's like really like this doesn't this doesn't it's just campy and this doesn't actually add anything at all, like, uh, of substance to this movie. Because since um, you guys can't see it, I'm just nodding repeatedly yeah. because to what he's saying. So the 80s references were campy at best. And they were like, oh, God, like, okay. And, and, and they weren't necessary either. Like, um, when you watch Stranger Things. Yeah, that was, that was a good one. I was going to bring that up. The 80s is, like, an integral part of what... Stranger Things is. You can't do Stranger Things if it's not in the 80s. So all those references are necessary. They're important for setting the stage. But this particular movie, you could have done this in any decade ever. It could have been modern times and it wouldn't have changed the fucking thing. Right. It didn't need to be in the 80s at all. They just, you know what I mean? They just did it because... I don't know, I guess they were capitalizing on that. I like, don't, that's oh, the thing. millennials why, love the 80s. Why did they do the 80s? I don't, I, I don't know. I still, to this day, I don't know. I have been told that it, it is, and again, this is just from a person uh, who, who's an intelligent person who, like, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure he didn't just pull this out of his ass, but somebody told me that they wanted to make it distinct from Captain America, which was set in World War II. Right. That's why the first one was World War One, and then they fast forwarded past, you know, the uh, Warner Brothers overthinking shit. The, the past World War Two because they didn't want to make it too much like Captain America, and so then they they hit the they were like, well, what's the next lovable decade, right? And so then they hit the eighties, right? But you know, and uh, again, like it was just it was really unnecessary, and while Stranger Things uses like the eighties culture as like kids easter eggs right 
it it really seemed like Wonder Woman eighty four used the eighties. Oh god, I don't know. As like like they were just really heavy with the paintbrush, and that's a good way to say it. It didn't add anything. It was just like we're gonna shove all of these eighties references in your face. You know what I mean? Like we're so eighties, and it's like wait, but what about the story? And it's like but eighties, you know. It, um, so there's your entire that. story is based on a magic rock that grants wishes, and you're more concerned about making sure that the 80s are prominently displayed. Fix your fucking script first. Right. Now, okay, again, all of that aside, right, my biggest problem, right, the, the, one, the one reason, like, I, if this hadn't existed, I probably could have forgiven the rest. But Gal Gadot is simply not captivating actress she's not i i don't like she's just not compelling right when she says she feels a thing i don't believe her when she's like trying to exert physical effort i don't believe her i i, I just at no at no point did i care about her character she was not compelling and I'm sorry, that's is this the fir- Is this the first time you feel that way? Or did you feel that way also in the first Wonder Woman? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I felt that way about the first one, too, honestly. So uh, you've, you've been holding on to that for a little while. Because most people seem to think that Gal Gadot is a good Wonder Woman. I just, I, I like... I'm not a critic. I'm not a professional critic. This is just armchair criticism. No, it's sure. a, no I, I asked I just, you. Like, I asked you. In terms of image, she fits Wonder Woman to a T, right? In terms of, like, image, right? In terms of actual acting ability, her range is extremely minuscule. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just it. Like, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I don't buy that she loves Steve. I don't buy that she, like, you know, really cares about humanity. Like, I just don't buy it. I don't think that Gal Gadot is particularly good in this movie, um, but I have not had a problem with her being Wonder Woman before. Hmm. It is only in this movie because the movie tries so hard to be melodramatic and be serious. And I don't think she pulls that off very well. If the movie is normally light and action oriented, I think she's fine. Like she's fine in the, the Fast and Furious movies that she's in. But, it, but I don't think that if you make the movie serious enough where she actually does need to pull off serious acting, I don't think she can pull that off. I think you're right in that way. Sure. You know and what? I, I think you're right. I think I, you're right. Like, you know, yeah. I, I think you're right. Like, when, It's because this movie tries to take itself too seriously. It's, it's, it's a weird paradigm with this movie where like it wants you to believe that it's campy and cheesy and that you shouldn't take it seriously but then it takes itself too seriously in other parts of the movie and so what am i supposed to do am i supposed to take this movie seriously or not because if i take it seriously this movie's plot is fucking retarded if i don't take it seriously then none of these other moments that that i'm supposed to care about have weight right so what am i supposed to do movie am i supposed to take you seriously or not and i don't think that even the movie knows whether or not i'm supposed to take it seriously right yeah because i mean you compare that mall scene compare that mall scene that you were just talking about compare that mall scene to like the scenes that are that that pedro pascal is in where it's like yeah where, where he's struggling with his own character he's struggling with his own morality and shit like that i'm supposed to care about him but i have this mall scene to start this movie 
Yeah. This God. is campy and cheesy and stupid, and I have a couple of different things that I wanted to ask you about, but the first one is that the invisible jet, the scene with the invisible jet is so dumb. They walk onto, like, I think a museum. Yeah, and they the just, Smithsonian. And they just walk away with a jet, and Steve Trevor, who's who flew World War One biplanes, just knows how to fly this jet. And he doesn't need a suit. I mean, forget Wonder Woman. I mean, we know that she do, she's not exactly human, so she doesn't necessarily right. need to wear a suit or have oxygen or whatever. But normal people, when they're flying a jet, need to have a flight suit and an oxygen mask. But yet, Steve Trevor doesn't need that. Right. And, and again, like, for me, I kind of chalk that up to if we've already bought into a magic rock that grants wishes, sure. Fuck, the, the guy doesn't need a, a, a suit. And sure, yeah, he can just fly a jet. Like, but, but why is that scene even in the movie? Do They they don't even need it. They, they, I, I think it's... It, it, look, think it about where an they, excuse to give her the invisible jet. Well, think about where they go from there. And then she can fly at the end? The fuck? She doesn't fly. She lassos the lightning, and then she swings like Spider-Man across the sky with her lasso. No, but at some point she actually... Yeah, I know. At some point... I mean, Wonder Woman always could fly, so why Wait, is she... really? Need... Yeah, always. I thought she could only fly in the invisible jet. No, she... I mean, it's... She uses the invisible jet to go faster than she normally can. But she can fly. Like, huh, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah, she can fly. And so if she can fly, why does she need to lasso the lightning? It's completely unnecessary. Yeah. And that brings me to my second point. The visuals in this in this movie are so bad. They're so cheesy. They look like something out of the fucking 70s. And I think that might be intentional. Because look at some of the scenes where like she's supposed to be running through the air are so obviously her being like supported by wires and her running above the ground. It looks so dumb. It like literally looks like oh Gal Gadot's running above the ground. It's fine. It's totally fine. You know I do this every single day. <laughs> like the visuals just look so bad. And like, there's one scene in particular. Holy shit! And maybe you might look up a gif of this later or something. But it's when they're in the Middle East, which by the way also came out of fucking nowhere. There's that whole chase scene when they're in the Middle East, and you she- mean GIF, right? GIF. No, it's, isn't it GIF? No, it's GIF. We're not going to get into this. Okay, go okay. ahead. It's GIF. Um, you completely derailed my thought. <laughs> right there. This is what I got to deal with, folks. Um, <laughs> she grabs a kid and she rolls with the kid to get away from the caravan. That's yeah. Mo- the, yeah, the, yeah. The vehicle yeah. caravan that's moving. Right. And... When Gal Gadot's actually pulling that stunt or the stunt double or whatever, it's so obvious that they're holding a doll or something. It's so fucking bad. Like, if you look at that scene, there is no way that is not a doll that's in her hand. It's so stiff and lifeless and stupid looking. Holy shit. How did that clear production? Yeah, for real. How did that clear production? I don't even know. Because that's so bad. Yeah. Yeah, considering the budget of this movie, there were... $200 million. $200 million. Chris, what could you do with $200 million? You could do better than that. Probably. You don't have an ounce of filmmaking in your entire (laughs) repertoire, and you could do better with $200 million. Maybe an ounce. I have a tiny bit. 
But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I You could have written a story that was better than a magic rock that grants wishes. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Oh man, magic rock that grants wishes. I <laughs> You know, I gotta say, like the <laughs> I gotta say though the like if you're going to start with a magic rock that grants wishes, wishing to become the rock, that's that's a, I didn't see that one coming. Like, man, that is an interesting wish. I mean, I could wish to become The Rock, but that means that I'm wishing to become Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I don't understand why you don't just, like, wish for a thousand wishes. Or, like, wish for an infinite number of wishes. The list is endless. Like, come on. You so, I guess this brings me to my next it. topic, though, is that... Okay, so I thought that movie was horrid. I thought it was horrid. Okay. I, 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 I have a lesser opinion of that movie than you do. But what you might be interested to know is that that movie has created divisiveness online for much the same reason that The Last Jedi did. A lot mm. of people think that people don't like that movie just because they can't handle the fact that it's Wonder Woman. They got a problem with the fact that it's a female-led movie, that it is uh, directed by a female director, that there's some kind of misogyny involved and why that movie is not being appreciated the way that they think that it should be. And I think that's completely ridiculous. Like, I have no problem with the... F like, even... You even said that you don't like Gal Gadot's acting, which is fine. Like, you brought... Right. Like, you, you bring up some good points. I mean, it's, it's, it's all a subjective thing. Anyway, I don't have a problem with Gal Gadot's acting. But... Um... My criticisms of the movie are not based in who... In who directed it. In... Mm. I mean, not the not her gender at least. It doesn't. That's not my thing. But apparently, like now, this movie is divisive because the people that hate it just hate women or something. Right. That, that's that's the conversation that's going on right now online. Yeah, I mean that doesn't surprise me that that's the conversation. Like uh, honestly, I kind of just ignore that shit. You know what I mean? Like, and and I'm not. My opinion is my opinion, right? Like. It's a work of fiction that you can have opinions about. And, you know, that's it. Like, uh, my criticism of it is what I just laid out. And, you know, if somebody says, like, well, it's just because you don't like the female, you don't like that it's a female lead or you don't like that it's a female director, I'd be like, well, uh, I disagree, but... What the so, fuck does it matter? Like... <laughs> it doesn't... It doesn't I mean, it, like... like like, I, yeah, I disagree, and and uh, that's it. You know what I mean? It's a movie that you can have. Like, it's just a movie. Do you like it or do you not like it? See, and this, is, and this is where I was going to go next, is that, like, I think that this whole idea of, like, we have to create excuses for why people don't like our movie, that's a, that's a new concept. It used to be before that you just made a movie, people didn't like it, and people were just like, okay, well, this movie didn't do very well. Whatever. But now there's always a reason for why people didn't like your movie. There's an alt <sighs> there's like an excuse that you can come up with. I mean, I think that that probably is just because of the advent of the internet, right? Because you have so many people that can talk to so many other people relatively anonymously, right? And so, you know, like it's so much easier, right, to just channel any kind of like anger, frustration you have, and instead of, you know, if you're in a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody, then 
you might try to like see things from their perspective or kind of like, you know, have a well-reasoned argument versus with the advent of the internet, you can just say, you know what I mean? Like, you're a bitch, fuck you, right? You know what I mean? Like you, you can just like throw, have some throwaway insult and that's it. Cause you're pretty basically anonymous, you know what I mean? And so like how people, I think that's kind of like my personal take on this is that it's, uh, you know, it, it's part of the advent of the internet and like how much easier it is to disseminate your opinion and like, you know, your views to so many other people so quickly with virtual anonymity. I just think people take it too far. I think people use it as an excuse too much to get out of their own shortcomings. Like, and I, and I got a specific example that I wanted to ask you about. Mm. So have you heard of the High Republic? Do you know what that is? I do not. So the High Republic is one of the things that has been introduced in the new Disney Star Wars. The High Republic is supposed to be a prequel to the prequels where it talks about like the Old Republic and mm. it's supposed to be a novel or comic series. Right. And it's been in the works for a bit, but right before it was launched, The Mandalorian Season 2 happened. And I want to read you something. It says, uh, now this rumor is that the reveal of the Luke Skywalker in the finale of Mandalorian's second season took all of the oxygen out of the High Republic. Nobody that was writing for the High Republic knew that Mandalorian was going to do that, that they were going to introduce Luke Skywalker at the end of the series. No one knew that okay, they were... Okay, but isn't High Republic... Didn't you say it was the prequel to the prequels? It's the prequel to the prequels. Okay. But, but apparently, according to the rumor, the members that were writing it, the authors and stuff, they weren't happy with how bombastic the ending of Mandalorian Season 2 was. They think that they, it completely overshadowed their announcement or their first draft of whatever they were putting out. But... You answered, first off, that you didn't even know what the High Republic was. Right. So why would you, why, how, would it, would it, how would it have changed your opinion of the High Republic that the Mandalorian Season 2 ended the way that it did? I mean, considering I don't know anything about the High Republic, I, I don't know, man. But, I mean, but, few, so, but, I, but I feel like it didn't, I don't know, yeah, I so, feel like that's just an excuse. But how defensive is this? It's so defensive that... Oh, you ruined you ruined our big announcement because you had the audacity to be something that everyone liked. Yeah, I mean, like fuck off, dude. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, that's like yeah. I, I w does this rumor make you more or less likely to want to see what the High Republic's all about? I mean, there's a lot of people that work on a project like that, and. That could that rumor could have been from somebody in marketing that was like, oh well, if we would have known that this was going to be the ending, we would have marketed this differently or like done the timing differently, you know. And and so that's that could be them just trying to cover their asses, right? And being like, this is why the High Republic isn't garnering so much attention, enough attention, you know. It's them covering their asses, and so they like quote unquote leak this rumor, um, you know. I, Speaking of leaks, the reason why no one told you that Luke Skywalker is going to be the ending of Mandalorian is probably because your asses would have leaked it. No one knew that shit was going to happen. Mark Hamill was involved, and he kept his mouth shut. 
No one right. knew that Mark Hamill was in the ending of The Mandalorian. Nobody knew that. It right. was a complete surprise. But if they had told you so, so it could make your marketing push a little bit better, you probably would have leaked it. Yeah, who knows? I mean, yeah. Now, okay, there is, like, one thing in terms of, like, uh, there, there's one thing in terms of, like, I don't know, I guess, like, the gender of, of like, writers or directors that I wanted to touch on. It's because I had a conversation about this last night. Is So I'm a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy, right? So am I. And it, I actually was, I was discussing this yesterday, and I lament that so many of the most well-known sci-fi and fantasy writers are, are all men because I can tell... Uh, that I can tell their like lack of perspective or lack of understanding when they are writing about a female character, especially their like a female character's internal monologue. Like at this point, it's just like there's so many instances where I'm like, this was clearly where it's like distractingly obvious that this female internal monologue was written by a man who actually doesn't really have a good understanding of like a typical feminine perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that like that bothers me, right? Like I want to read more sci-fi and fantasy written by female authors, you know, because I'm tired of of I'm kind of sick of like male authors writing about female perspectives in their stories and not getting it right. Have you read the? Um, I I know the answer to this question already, but have you have you read the uh, the Hunger Games series? I have not read the Hunger Games series. No, I okay. watched the movies, but it's okay. Um, it's the only. It's the it's the most recent example of a sci-fi story that I've read that's by a female author. There's there's one I read years ago called uh, The Sparrow, which okay, I know that one. Yeah, The Sparrow is a great sci-fi book. It is. It is uh, what I like. I don't know. I, I personally call it like near sci-fi, meaning there's science fiction that is so far removed from our current life that the technology might as well be magic. Yeah, right? it's fantasy. There's a reason why they put sci-fi fantasy in the same section in the bookstore. Right, like so. Back there, when we can go to bookstores. So there's like a sci-fi. There's a level of sci-fi that might as well be magic, right? Lightsabers are a good example. Lightsabers are magic. Oh, I gotta show you something, by the way. Light lightsabers are fucking magic, dude. You know what I mean? Like that. That's it. I got. I, I. You know. Um. I forget what this channel's called, but these guys made basically like a functioning like sword made out of plasma that can cut through shit. Yeah, but it doesn't function like a lightsaber. No, it doesn't function like right. a lightsaber. It's, not, it's nowhere near as portable. It's like a big... They they need a big butane tank in order to make that work. So, you know, there's that, right? And then you have things like The Expanse, which I've been encouraging you to watch. Where, I'm going to one of these days. Right, where, like, The Expanse... Um, the Expanse is set in the future, but not so far in the future that we can't understand the technology that's going on. Where, like, all of the technology going on, we, like, can make sense of it. It's all it's all pretty relatable for the most part, mm-hmm. right? Where you can understand, you know, what is going on. I've seen a little about, um, I saw a, big, a Because Science episode on it. And it does sound like, you know, it sounds more realistic. 
you know, when they when they're creating a doomsday weapon, for example, that was what this episode was about. I'm like, that actually sounds like a plausible doomsday weapon. It's way more realistic than Starkiller Base. Right? So, yeah, there's there's things like that. And and so the Sparrow is in a near future sci-fi, it's like a near future sci-fi book. Um but it could also theoretically you could take almost the same story and put it into like the colonial period, right? Mm-hmm. The basic premise is that uh, alien life is discovered, right, in a nearby like sis- like solar system, right, a nearby star system, and Earth sends a delegation, right, a group of like people like to explore it, right. Mm-hmm. And again, it's basically the analogy of like you're sending people on a ship to like right, just, yeah, you know, was, explore. Yeah, you, you could definitely a new do that. You could definitely do that with indigenous people and colonials. A hundred percent. Yeah. So and then this is the story of what happens, right? Like you know, a, a like a member of the delegation gets back to Earth and says what happened, right? And so like that's this story. Um, so the fact like you don't really need to know about how the spaceship works, right? There's like some things about like some sci-fi stuff about how they survive on this alien planet, but like by and large, you don't need to really know. Like it, you know, it, there's nothing. So that, the story doesn't need to be sci-fi. Is what not necessarily. That, yeah, that story could function in like modern periods or whatever else. But it is a really fantastic story um, if you get around to reading the Sparrow, it. right? The Sparrow. Uh, the author's name is Mia. But I forget her last name. I can probably look that up momentarily. Um, but yeah, like really, really good. And, and that's like the one sci-fi novel written by a female that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, at least one that like really... You're uh, right. You're right. I'm oh, sorry. You know what? Not Mia. Mary Doria Russell. Mary Doria Russell. Okay. Mary Doria Russell. Yeah, I wrote The Sparrow. Um but uh, I actually, a friend of mine just... Would you would you go on the record and say that you recommend this series to listeners? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a series. I think it's just a single book. Oh, it's just a single book. But yeah, 100%. 100%. Like, if, if, you, if you're into sci-fi... It's got Chris stamp of approval. If you, if you are into sci-fi at all, like, it's really good. Um, really, really well done. So, I like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I wish I could say that I knew more... Um, sci-fi fantasy that's written by female novelists i only know the one that's the only one i've read um so you're right there is a very large um divide in the number of uh, authors that work in this genre and I, don't, I mean you have twilight that counts as fantasy i'm never and it is well known but I'm, I'm i haven't never, read it and i I'm, probably won't i'm never gonna read that series right fuck that series my cousins read that series and she's like this these books are trash I don't know why she finished all of them if she says they're trash, but they're trash. Yeah, I so I just, I really want more. I, I want to, like, I, I got to do some digging. I know they're out there, but I got to do some digging for that stuff. And, uh, you know, th- there are instances, like I, I mentioned, where I'm like, this is a male author well, writing about a female perspective well, bring who it, clearly doesn't know what Bringing it back about. a little bit to where we were before with Wonder Woman. Um, there is, I think, a certain level of sympathy that goes into the reviews of Wonder Woman 1984 because it's a female-led project. There are people, there are, they want it to be successful so badly because they want more female directors in Hollywood. Mm. And sure, that's a, that's a wonderful goal. But 
they're willing to overlook a lot of things that they wouldn't overlook if this was a male-led project. Do you think there's any validity to what I just said? I haven't read any of the reviews. I mean, I've only heard, you know, things from my friends, but most of the, you know, like, that's it. I haven't, like, read any professional reviews on the movie, so I can't really comment on that, you know? Um, like, yeah, I do genuinely hope that there are more female-led movies out there, like, you know, all fiction projects, all creative projects. I, I think we absolutely need to promote, like, women in places of, like, power and, and creative control, uh, you know, 100%. That, that, I mean, you know, and, and even though I absolutely want that to happen, like, you know, you judge a project based on its merits. On its right? merits, right? Yeah. But I can't really talk, I can't really say one way or another whether any reviewer that's fine is but like I, mean, I think you know, it's, I think it's fair enough tilting their review I think it's fair enough what you just said and I think that's the goal that I think everybody should shoot for anybody that's creative is that I don't think it should matter this is just my personal feeling I don't think it should matter who you are what you look like or what your gender is your work should stand for itself right um, now the flip side of that is that there are a lot of you know, and I, I, this is an oversimplification, but there are a lot of glass ceilings, right? Where sure. women cannot advance to these positions of power and creative control. And so I think that in order to correct for the systemic bias against them, you need to actively make sure that they get, you know, opportunities to be directors, to Oppor be writers, to be leads. Opportunity, though, I think is the key word. I think that they should be given opportunities. But I don't think that just because those glass ceilings exist, that I should be obligated to like their work just because they're cracking the glass ceiling. Sure. Yeah. You should have the opportunity to make something. But once you've made it, then it then you know then, then it's a piece of work that I'm gonna judge on its own merits. It doesn't right. it doesn't matter how uh, it doesn't matter how much of a pioneer you are specifically. It, your work should speak for itself, and just 1984 Wonder Woman 1984 doesn't do that for me. Right, it doesn't do that for me. Um, so um, I don't I know I kind of dragged you into more of a political thing than I, I think you necessarily felt comfortable with. So I'm I'm sorry about no, that. No, no, that's all right. But um, that's, that's been the conversation online. And the conversation also goes back to... Uh, so Patty Jenkins is the director of Wonder Woman 1984. She's also supposed to be directing um, a movie in the Star Wars universe called Star Wars Rogue Squadron. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Similar to the video game? Based off the video game? What is it based off of? We don't know yet. Mm. We don't know yet. We just know that it's called Star Wars Rogue Squadron. And so I love... Those video games. I love those video games. The Nintendo 64 game, uh, the two that are on GameCube, I love those games. So I have a high expectation of what is going to be Rogue Squadron. And if it's not going to be centered around Luke Skywalker and Wedge Antilles, because I don't think it will be, well, then it's going to be based around the squadron they found. Right. But so she had full creative control over Wonder Woman 1984. That didn't do it for me. Clearly, I just talked about it. And now she's the, supposed to be the person in charge of a new uh, Star Wars movie that is based on something I do really enjoy. So I'm mm. very highly skeptical 
of what that's supposed to be like. You know, it's a completely different, like, world. It's, you know, it's a... There's a lot of differences. You're only... see. It's also a TV show. But you're only... No, no, no. It's not going to be a TV show. Oh, it's a movie? It's going to be a movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's going to be other TV shows. Like, there's the Ahsoka TV show, the Boba Fett TV show, and, um... There's one other TV show that I can't remember. But no, Rogue Squadron is supposed to be a movie. Hmm. Okay. I mean, we'll see. The thing is, like, yeah, like, she, you know, depends on how much control she has. But in general, most movies are a collaboration, right? Like, they're not one person dictating, calling all the shots, right? They're a collaboration of multiple people. So, we'll see. You know what I mean? Um, I hope you're... Yeah. I hope you're right. I want to be optimistic about it. I'm just... I'm jaded as fuck after after that movie. I, I, you know, I love Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman are my three favorite superheroes, period. After, huh. that, after them is Spider-Man. Huh. I didn't realize Wonder Woman was that high for you. No, she is. Because uh, especially if you, see the, uh, if you see the way she's portrayed in the, uh, the animated movies. She's wonderful in the animated movies. Wonder Woman is wonderful. <laughs> um... I love that character, and you know, I I felt like she deserved better. I thought the I thought the first Wonder Woman movie was good, and then it got real bad towards the end. But I loved the World War One aesthetic. I loved it. Mm. Her charging the trenches with her shield up and shit was so fucking badass. I loved it. <laughs> and say what you want about Gal Gadot, but she looked good when she was doing it. Sure. Um. All right, Chris. Well. I think we've uh, hit our quota for today. Yeah. It was wonderful having you on. Thanks. It was good to be as here. A, yeah, as always. Um, we're going to have some guests on here pretty soon. I'm working to get um, some online things going so that we can do an online conversation. I want to I bring on somebody to talk about Attack on Titan because, dude, it's fucking killer. I, I wish you could see it. Um, but Chris Robert doesn't do anime. Um, <laughs> and I also have a couple of other guests in mind, so... Hopefully soon we'll get some other people in here with us so we can talk about things. But, dude, happy 2021. And yep. let's, uh, I mean, if you, had any, if you had any drink left, I would toast and say, let's let this year be better than the next one. Or the better than the last one. Yeah, I kind of think that goes without saying. <laughs> Can't be much worse, right? <laughs> right. Oh, God. If I was superstitious, I'd knock on the wood. Well, I got one last thing that I wanted to gripe with you about. You haven't made... The Irish coffee that I told you to make and put it on your Instagram yet. Oh, you're right. I have not. But so, Irish Coffee Day, National Irish Coffee Day is coming up. So you should do it. Yeah. Timing's good. Listeners, hit up Chris on his Instagram account and tell him... Chris D. Raba. Chris D. Raba on Instagram. And tell him that you want him to make drinks, pretty drinks, and put them on his Instagram. Because he should uh, do it. Because he should do it. He's got... He's got enough free time. Yeah, I do it from time to time. I put pretty drinks on, yeah. On, and uh, and believe and believe you me, if you hadn't had a chance to check out to to try Chris Robbins drinks, when quarantine is over, when pand- when the pandemic is over and you're able to visit his bar again, I tell you, it's worth it. You're too kind. So that's Chris Raba. You can find uh, this particular podcast if you guys have feedback, if you guys have suggestions, topics, anything. That's the geeky bartender at Outlook.com. I know we said last time that it was Gmail. It's actually Outlook. That's my bad. Ah. Yeah, I, I've, I've since corrected it when I've put it online, but it's the geeky bartender, the geeky bartender at Outlook.com. 
Send me your guys' requests, send me your guys' suggestions, all that stuff. And then you can find me at KT Vindicare on Twitter and YouTube. Um, I'm look. I would be happy to listen to anything you guys have to say. So, is there anything else you want to say, Chris, before we sign off? No, I think uh, I think you covered it. Uh, right. Until next time, guys. Thanks all for right. joining us. Well, until next time, you guys. This is KT Vindicare, and we are signing off.